Carrie Miller, and you're listening to a special episode of Big Books and Bold Ideas. A portrait of the justices of the U.S. Supreme Court in 2019 reveals one crucial difference for the future of legal abortion in America. The late Ruth Bader Ginsburg is smiling between Justices Alito and Roberts, and Amy Coney Barrett has not yet made up the fifth conservative vote that will endanger Roe v. Wade. But our guest today saw it coming. Robin Marty published her book, New Handbook for a Post-Roe America, in 2019. And we thought this was an especially important conversation this week. Ms. Marty is a writer and the communications director for the West Alabama Women's Center. She joins us from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Robin, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Gary, thank you so much for having me on. You wrote in the 2020 prologue to your book that we have already been living in a post-Roe America, even though at that point the Supreme Court had not spoken in this latest decision. Here's my question. Did you say that because states were becoming increasingly bolder in making access to abortion difficult, even though Roe was still the lay of the land? For a lot of activists who have been in the movement, um, one of the things that we talk about is the fact that Roe has never been enough for so many of the people who need abortions. Almost immediately after Roe was handed down, we saw the Hyde Amendment first come into play. And the Hyde Amendment was an annual amendment that the Congress would basically approve each and every year that stated that you could not use Medicaid to cover abortion costs. A lot of people don't understand that for most people, getting an abortion is something that is one of the few medical procedures that a lot of people end up paying for out of pocket. Um, prices these days are between $500 and $700 for a first trimester abortion and fairly similar back in the 70s when this passed. Because so many people were unable to access abortion because they were on Medicaid, primarily women of color, um, black and brown women, poor women, for these people, abortion was already out of reach all the way back in 1976 when the first Hyde Amendment passed. For year after year, Congress keeps allowing it to go back into effect, blocking these people from being able to have abortion covered under their insurance like it is under almost everybody else's. Um, Minnesota is one of the few states in the nation that allows people who are on Medicaid to be able to use their insurance coverage to pay for it, leaving Minnesota with much better access than many states. But for instance, down here in Alabama, it's not only impossible to use Medicaid to pay for an abortion, you can't use any private insurance at all. So that is the Hyde Amendment. And in the years since, and most recently in the last several years, we've seen increasing numbers of state states put laws into effect that are designed, I think they openly concede this, designed to ensure that fewer and fewer women are going to be able to access abortion, and fewer and fewer clinics are going to be able to uh, provide those services. Robin, would you talk about Texas, because I think it kind of stands out as a as an as a example of what, what I've just described. Of course, Texas, as a lot of people know, has actually not had almost any elective abortions since September 1st of 2021. Um, the state of Texas passed a specific ban that was a ban on abortion after the point in which electric cardiac activity, um, they call it a heartbeat, can be found on an ultrasound, which is between one and two weeks past a missed period. Because of this, and because of this enforcement measure that they use that allows any person to do a lawsuit either against somebody who has performed an abortion or someone who is said to be aiding or abetting a person who is obtaining an abortion in the state. So that could apply to anything from helping provide money for an abortion to driving somebody somewhere in order to obtain an abortion or giving a person medication that could cause an abortion. All of these things have essentially shut down what remaining clinics are in the state, and no one will provide an abortion past about six weeks. Um, this is just the latest in an ongoing onslaught of laws that have been passing since 2010 
that have meant to eliminate as much access to abortion in that state as possible. The Dobbs case in Mississippi, the reality is this is the third case that the Supreme Court will have seen on abortion since 2016. And the first one was called Whole Women's Health v. Hellerstead. Whole Women's Health v. Hellerstead was the result of what we call trap laws. Those are called targeted regulation of abortion provider laws. And these are laws that are created by conservative legislatures in order to try to close down abortion clinics specifically by treating them different from any other outpatient medical center. In 2014, Texas passed a trap law that said that not only does every doctor who provides an abortion, even if it's just for medication abortion, needs to have admitting privileges to a local hospital, it also created a new series of regulations that had to exist for every abortion clinic, regardless of what gestation they were providing, that essentially set them up as something called an ambulatory surgical center. In the period in which this law was allowed to be in effect, we saw most of the clinics in the state of Texas close. At one point, there were only six remaining clinics in the entire state, including no clinics in the Rio Grande Valley, which is the southernmost part of Texas, where most people who live down there have access to only one clinic and are kind of partitioned in by immigration checkpoints, so they can't get into the rest of the state of Texas. In 2016, the Supreme Court decided that that was what was known as an undue burden to access to the right to an abortion. But while many of the abortion clinics reopened, a lot of them did not. And because of that, we have at this point about 15 clinics that are in Texas, even before this new bill that makes abortion almost inaccessible happened. We started in 2010 with all of these very incremental laws that were meant to either take down gestational limits by a week or two weeks here, or close one or two clinics over on the other side in this way of sort of tightening a noose around the neck of abortion providers. That all went out the window after President Donald Trump was elected, after we saw all of these different state legislatures um, assume that there was a new Supreme Court that would no longer care about the idea of precedent or undue burden and would simply want to eliminate all abortion access altogether. So that is why... Uh, as we as we said at the beginning of our conversation, you say we have been living for some amount of years in a post-Roe America. I, I want to talk about geography and mm-hmm. what this will look like in the United States for access to abortion. It, it looks like that there will be regions, contiguous states, where abortion will be illegal, which means that getting a legal abortion in a clinic in a state that provides it could mean crossing your state and the one next to it, which outlaws abortion, or getting on a flight uh, to fly into some of these areas that are post-Roe, still legalized abortion regions. Give me a big picture of what the geography might look like, and then we'll talk about some individual regions. Definitely. Um, When people talk about a post-Roe America, a lot of times we talk about this idea of patchwork of access. And we often will say in a shorthand form, a person will have to leave the state in order to access care. That's actually where we are currently, even with Roe v. Wade in place. For example, we have patients who come over to our clinic in Alabama all the time from Mississippi. They come over because we are quicker to get into, because we have more appointments available. They come over because they don't want to necessarily go to the clinic in their state because they don't want to be seen by people. The problem is that when we talk about the idea of a patchwork of abortion access, it makes it sound like you'll have a state that has access and then you won't have a state next to it. And then you'll have another state that has access. And that's really not the case at all. What we're talking about is essentially a batch of states over on the West Coast and a batch of states over on the East Coast and almost nothing in between. Wow. So you wrote about our region, the Midwest, Mm -hmm. and said, using the direst predictions 
in the Midwest access would be limited almost exclusively to Minneapolis and Chicago. Is that because a lot of these rural clinics wouldn't be able to survive, even in states where abortion access is likely to remain legal? Why just those two cities? So it's more of a matter of the idea that, first of all, obviously in the Midwest, there's a number of states that are unlikely to have abortion whatsoever. Um, Michigan it currently has a pre-row abortion ban that while it was just recently struck down by the governor, there's a lawsuit to have it put back in place by the conservative legislature. So that's still a little iffy as to what's going to happen. We know there will be no legal abortion in either of the Dakotas. Um, mm-hmm. Iowa is in the point of of trying to pass a constitutional amendment to remove legal abortion there. Um, Wisconsin already has a pre-row ban on their books that they are not able to get their legislature to get rid of. In the state of Minnesota, we primarily have all of our abortion access in the Twin Cities. Um, Obviously, there's the Planned Parenthood in St. Paul. There's Whole Women's Health. Um, There are abortion providers, but they're all mostly located in that area. One thing that has changed very dramatically just in the last year And I can't tell you how difficult it is to write books about abortion, because anytime you write one, everything changes before it actually goes to the printer. But one good side of what we're seeing is that we have seen an FDA that has eliminated a lot of the restrictions that come from providing medication abortion. Um, Because of this, we are going to see a lot more opportunities. Um, There's a group called Just the Pill that exists in Minnesota that is providing mobile clinics that will be able to travel. Um, There's telemed that can be done through the state of Minnesota, and that will also provide opportunities for people to be able to come just across the border, say into Moorhead or someplace like that in order to be able to get a legal abortion that they could not get in their own state. So we're seeing a lot more movement into the very borderlands of, of the legal states that I wasn't entirely anticipating when I wrote the book. But that was because, first of all, medication abortion was not quite as easily available. But also, um, there's a lot more, there's a lot more, um, I don't want to say enthusiasm, but there's a lot more reaction to the idea of Roe completely disappearing that has helped people understand that moving clinics to these borderlands are are actually something that can be done. A lot of times the reason why we don't see new abortion clinics open is because the areas that are right on the edges of states tend to be more conservative, but also it's extremely difficult to open up a new brick and mortar abortion clinic. You will see that people who are doing that often have to purchase buildings without letting people know what they're for. They have to use shell companies in order to be able to lease places because otherwise they will get protesters. They will get people who will contact um, boards of of condos or different associations to make sure that a place can't move in. We see clinics all the time that are trying to do repairs or trying to reiterate their clinics so that they meet different laws and their their vendors will get harassed. Um, roofing agents will be called and emailed and people will, will come by and yell at them. In our own clinic in Alabama, we tried to update our security system and the entire time that the people were outside trying to put up new cameras, we had protesters there calling them Nazis. Um, It's really difficult to be able to open up clinics both from a logistical standpoint and a financial standpoint. So I was not anticipating so many clinics being able to move into these border areas, but I think we are going to see a lot of that. And thank goodness, because there's no place else for people to go. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to a special episode of Big Books and Bold Ideas. We are talking with Robin Marty. She's the author of New Handbook for a Post-Row America. It was published in 2019. And if you've heard the beginning of the conversation, you know that she is saying many parts of the country are essentially living in a post-Row America, even before this latest decision from the U.S. Supreme Court. So we are talking with her this morning about geography 
and regulations and laws that anticipated this Supreme Court decision and what the United States is going to look like in the wake of the decision. The book is called New Handbook for a Post-Row America. Uh, Robin, just I want to linger on the geography here for a minute. Mm -hmm. I, I do want to talk to you about medicated abortions and these mobile clinics. It's an interesting concept um, for which I think the planning has been in effect, it, it sounds like, for the last couple of years. When you talk about the South, you write, there would be no care between the westernmost part of Texas and the eastern half of Florida. And when you say that, I think you mean there would be no clinics, bricks and mortar clinics, that women could access for abortion care in that huge swath of the country. Is that right? No, it's actually worse than when I wrote that. Uh -huh. um, when okay. I wrote that, at that point, Florida still looked like it was going to hold on to their state constitutional right to an abortion. And all indications in the last year is that that is not going to happen. Over the last two years, the state of Florida passed a parental notification law that had been brought up multiple times by the legislature and passed and was never put into effect because... Every time it was challenged in the courts, the court said that the state right to the state constitution of Florida says there is a right to an abortion. However, um, since Ron DeSantis has been in the in the governor's house, there has been a turnover on the state supreme court, and a number of far more conservative judges have been added to it. At this point, um, Florida activists are dealing with both the parental notification, which they have not challenged, and now a more recent 15-week abortion ban that was just passed and is going to go into effect in July of this year. Activists are trying to decide whether that 15-week ban is something that they should challenge in court, because if they challenge it in court, that opens up the opportunity for this new, far more conservative state Supreme Court to reverse themselves and say it turns out that there is no right to an abortion. Um, so if that happens, we're talking about no legal abortion in a clinic anywhere from Western Texas to the ocean. Wow. So as you go up the coastline, where, let's say you are someone in Florida, in this mm -hmm. post-Roe America, who wants abortion care, and you're looking north, how far north would you have to go to get North Carolina. illegal abortion? Okay. North Carolina. And, um, and what North do you Carolina think is where people would go. And for people who are more in the middle and so not quite so far over to the coast, so for instance, Mississippi people, Alabama people, Louisiana, the most likely destination will be southern Illinois. And some of those states that we're talking about in the south are purple. I mean, they may have you know, legislatures where Republicans are in charge, but there may be a Democratic governor or something. I mean, how, mm -hmm. I guess, how stable from your perspective are some of these states that are in the South and where the, the politics seem to be kind of in flux? That's an excellent question. Um, I know that Georgia is definitely one of the states that I'm keeping an eye on, both as an access point and also because we've seen so much movement when it comes to Democrats gaining strength in that state. My worry is that for every state like Georgia, where we do see that we are making gains and it could possibly turn around, we will have a state like Virginia, which prior to the last election had done all sorts of wonderful laws in order to make abortion more accessible, including taking away some of the restrictions on their clinics. Um, but now, just in this last election, had a Republican majority elected as well as a Republican governor and and that could all disappear. It's one of the reasons that I get 
very frantic about the idea of people saying that the best way for us to change the landscape and fix the abortion access issue is by focusing on elections, because we see elections give us gains, but we see them get wiped out just as easily in the next in the next cycle. And so to rely completely on that rather than to focus our advocacy around protecting people who are going to get an abortion, whether it's legal or not legal, whether it's in a clinic or outside of a clinic, that's the permanent sort of change that we need to be focusing on in order to make sure that we have rights that aren't wiped out based on whoever wins at the ballot box. You work for the West Alabama Women's Center in Tuscaloosa. Tell me what a what a week in the life of that clinic is like from the you know from the protesters that may show up outside to the patients who come inside to get the care. What's it like? So I've been down here in Alabama for a little over a year now. And in the period of time in which I've been down here, I've actually moved from communications to I'm now the director of of the clinic, which is kind of a major change, but also um, one that I'm really enjoying. We had a very stable we had a very stable sort of schedule. West Alabama Women's Center for background has been an abortion clinic that has been providing abortion care since 1993. Um, It Mm -hmm. was closed briefly during a period where the state of Alabama also made these targeted abortion regulation laws. And so the clinic had to be updated as well as the doctor was trying to get credentialed and hospital privileges until the Supreme Court ended up blocking that law. Since then, things have been very regular. This is the only clinic in the state and I believe one of two clinics in the region that have doctors that actually live in the area. And because of that, we are able to provide abortion five days a week. That's very Mm -hmm. unusual in the South where there are very few abortion providers that live in the area in which they're giving care. Most of the time you will see that doctors who are coming to clinics in Mississippi, in Louisiana, in Alabama, they fly in from more friendly regions. And they often will also do circuits around all of these different clinics. So a number of clinics in the South will only actually provide procedures once or twice a week. We do that five days a week, but we also are in a state that says that you have a 48-hour waiting period. So for a patient who has decided that they want an abortion, regardless of where they live, they need to come to the clinic. They will have a first day appointment where they have material that they have to read that will tell them that they can get assistance if they wish to continue the pregnancy, um, tells them about the procedures. There's a lot of so-called informed consent material in there that is just still not true, such as abortion causes breast cancer or that it's likely to make you more likely to have miscarriages later in life. These are all things that have been proven by science. Let me stop you there for just a second. I just want to make sure I heard that correctly. There is informed consent information in the packet that is given to women who are in in this waiting period contemplating an abortion scheduled for one that is wrong the science is wrong the science is wrong but that's not a southern thing just to be clear um in the state of minnesota you are also provided with what is known as the women's right to know packet which has the same information in it so in the state of minnesota although the patient does not need to come in physically for it they are given that material prior to their abortion usually when they call to set up an appointment and then they can have an appointment 24 hours after they have read all of this material, which you can get online that says abortion causes breast cancer, a fetus can feel pain at 20 weeks, which is also not proven. Abortion is likely to cause mental health issues. Um, These are all blatantly false pieces of propaganda that the state has put together and have shared with other states in order to make sure that a person tries to reconsider their abortion. So women get the packet in -hmm. your clinic. They have 48 hours to read through it and prepare for the appointment. Then what happens? 
So after 48 hours has passed, and remember, a lot of our patients aren't actually from the state. I would say at this point, 25% of all of the patients who come to us are from out of state. So they usually have to travel anywhere from 2 to 10, 12 hours in order to get to the clinic for this first appointment. Then they have to leave for at least 48 hours, and then they are allowed to come back for their actual abortion procedure. This is something that we've been able to streamline a small amount by, for people who are out of state especially, we can send these materials to a person's home. And then that way they take a picture of their materials when they receive it and send it back to us. Mm -hmm. And that can, can constitutes the start of their 48 hour wait. When we do that, then they can make just one trip. But since basically the beginning of 2022, we've gone from seeing around 30 to 40 patients a week to 75 to 100. And this is primarily because of the fact that once Texas no longer had clinics that people could go to, those Texas patients started traveling out of state to get their abortions, usually in Kansas, New Mexico, but also over in Louisiana. Louisiana has three clinics. Those clinics overfilled, and so patients started to try to come to Mississippi. Mississippi has one clinic. That clinic overfilled and were the next stop. So we are seeing patients who are coming all the way over from Texas because they can't get into any clinic anywhere closer to them for at least a month. And because of that, we have patients who will travel all night in order to get to us, in order to be there in the morning at 8 a.m. for a procedure. Or we will have patients who will travel over because they were the few lucky ones who were able to get into an abortion clinic in Texas early enough to do a medication abortion without it being Mm -hmm. illegal, but then have the rare occurrence that the medication abortion was not successful. And because of that, their pregnancy has advanced too far to be able to do it in Texas. They have to travel out in order to then have a procedural abortion that they can't get in their own state. It sounded like you foresee many more abortions being done through this combination of of medications. And that, I guess, the positive side of that on the on the behalf of the patient is they will not have to do this kind of traveling that much of this procedure can be done over telecommunications and they can do it in their own home what's what else should we understand about these medication abortions and and do you indeed believe that they they'll become much more common Medication abortion itself has become very common in the last few years, and especially during the COVID pandemic. There was a lot of access via telehealth, um, primarily because people did not want to be in clinics, and also there were the the restrictions that made it so that it was more difficult for people to be in public spaces because of, obviously, trying to mitigate the possibility of spread. Um, But medication abortion is perfectly safe and it is one of the most common means of abortion i believe at this point two-thirds of all abortions are done via medication however while it is very accessible in states like minnesota it is not accessible in the south um there are laws in most of the states down here that state that a person cannot get an abortion via telemed so you can get medication abortion but you still have to go into the clinic in order to do that so that doesn't make it more accessible for them um there are also rules against anybody besides a a clinic prescribing these medications and giving them to people um plus once you add into that the fact that medication abortion cannot be passed from state to state. So when a person in Alabama wants a medication abortion, their only option is to be able to come into our clinic and get medication that way. Whereas if a person in Minnesota wanted to do a medication abortion, they could go into a clinic or they could contact an organization that provides it and will mail it into the state because there are no laws against that conservative legislatures from the very beginning that medication abortion became 
more available were already looking at ways that they could make sure that this was not a panacea that patients would be able to access and that clinics would be able to use. Telemed bans were introduced by Americans United for Life as a piece of model legislation in 2011, and 18 different states have passed these bans. And unsurprisingly, those are the same states that are going to say that Roe v. Wade will, removing Roe v. Wade and making will make abortion completely illegal in their states. So when we have organizations that say that they are national organizations that provide medication, the reality is that they're only going to provide medication into the states where it is already legal, which are also the states where abortion is going to be legal. If you contact a national organization like Abortion On Demand or Hey Jane or these other pill places, and you say that you live in Alabama, they're not going to send it to you because that could get Hmm. them into legal trouble. There is one organization that is located overseas known as aidaccess.org, and that is the only place that a person who lives in a state with a telemed ban can contact and still get medication sent into their state. And so for most people, if they want medication abortion, that is going to be their only outlet. Robin Marty is with us this morning. If you're tuned in to Big Books and Bold Ideas, my Friday book show, we thought this was an important conversation. She is the director of the West Alabama Women's Center in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And she's the author of New Handbook for a Post-Roe America. She published in 2019, and as she has noted, a lot of things have changed on the landscape. She updated the prologue in 2020, but yes, Uh, laws and, I guess, arguments, uh, legal arguments about abortion continue to evolve. And so you'll hear the the conversation is taking note of what's happening on on the landscape here. I want to ask you about the black market and these, uh, and access to abortion pills. I mean, just as there was access to abortion care in the years before Roe v. Wade, Do you believe that there will be fairly widespread access, even in the states where you've said that there are laws against medical abortion, that women will be able to get access to to these pills? Most definitely. And that is one thing that I am grateful for is the fact that unlike pre-row days, we have an extraordinarily safe way for people to be able to access abortion on their own without needing a medical center or a doctor or anything like that. Um, as I had mentioned, there are a number of telemed companies where people can obtain abortion. Um, these are all listed on a website called Plan C. And on that website, there are options for people who either are in a state where they can have medicine sent to them. But there are also discussions on how a person can use mail forwarding or go to the border of another state or in the case of using aidaccess.org, otherwise obtain the same medication that we use in our clinic, as well as the same instructions on how to do your own abortion and manage all of the care in your home. We often say that it's disappointing to see when activism happens now that there's still this idea of abortion being unsafe if it's illegal. It's not unsafe. There, No one's going to be using coat hangers. No one is hopefully going to be throwing themselves down the stairs because we do have very safe, very accessible options, even if they are not legal. The biggest issue in a post-Roe America isn't going to be people who harm themselves trying to terminate pregnancies. It's going to be that people People are going to be open to legal risks and potentially jailed over the actions that they take in order to reclaim their own bodily autonomy. You have some very practical recommendations in your handbook, and one of them is that women get abortion pills ahead of time because trying to get them in the moment might be difficult. Can you do that if you are not pregnant, but you're sexually active, and you think you may need this. Yeah, that is another place where aidaccess.org is actually an amazing resource. Starting in Texas in September, once abortion became inaccessible down there, 
they started a campaign for encouraging people to do pre to do pre provision, which is just the idea of obtaining medication to have on hand should a person need it later because they want to end a pregnancy. Um, this was actually a campaign that is an amazing idea, simply because Aid Access had most of its surge in in people contacting them during the COVID pandemic. And because that was still a period in which we had a very Republican president and government, often because aid access provided from overseas, these pills were getting stuck in customs. So we know that medication abortion, although it can be used very easily up through the first 12 weeks, is at its most effective, usually within the first 10. When there is an issue with pills taking anywhere from three to five weeks to get to a person, you can see how that could be a time crunch for a person who's going to use them. Because medication abortion is something that a person can get ahead of time and then, frankly, have in their their medicine cabinet in case there is a need or give to someone else who does have a need, um, obviously in states like Texas, this is what would be known as aiding and abetting. But I believe that every person, just like they have the right to their own bodily autonomy, has the ability to decide for themselves what legal risks they are willing to take for themselves and for others in order to make sure that abortion remains accessible. So obtaining medication ahead of time really in a lot of ways isn't any different than the idea of wanting to get plan B ahead of time because you don't want to go look for it at the moment that you've had unprotected sex and you have a brief window to use it, you want to already have it there so that you can plan ahead for emergencies. You know, what you were saying about Texas reminded me of something I wanted to ask you about, which is the intersection of surveillance and limited or ending access to abortion. Because some of these state laws include surveillance methods and bounties for healthcare providers who are providing services or advice about abortion. And one of the things that you advise is for people who might need an abortion to only use Signal, this app that deletes messages and provides anonymity. I mean, precisely what are you concerned about, Robin, when it comes to online communication about needing an abortion? In general, um, we have already seen people who are criminalized because of trying to obtain an abortion themselves and do it themselves. We saw the woman in the Rio Grande Valley just last month who was arrested for murder. Um, and the eventually the DA said that they did not mean to do that. It should not have been the person who was pregnant. But we've seen other instances where people have been charged with various things, anything from... Um, trying to practice medicine without a license to illegal disposal of fetal remains, um, use of medication without a prescription. There are any number of charges that somebody who wants to charge someone for doing their own abortion can use rather than actually calling it abortion. And in all of these cases, the people who are criminalized are usually find that they're especially their text messages or their internet searches are used against them when it comes to the actual prosecution. One good example of this is Pervi Patel, who in 2015 in Indiana was charged with both feticide and child endangerment over a, it was probably a 24-week miscarriage that was cited as being a possible attempt at self-aborting. And through that, one of the one of the things that was brought up at her trial was the fact that she had sent someone text messages saying that she did not want to be pregnant. These are the kind of things that concern me. And these are the reasons why we're telling people that if they are pregnant and they don't necessarily know if they wish to be pregnant, as much as it's awful to say, it's information that is always going to be best if you keep it to yourself until you've decided what you want to do with that pregnancy. This isn't just about pregnancy and trying to get an abortion, but for instance, 
when we're talking about the idea of pre-provisioning pills, if you are a person who decides that they would want an abortion and then pre-provisions and has abortion medication with them and then later gets pregnant and decides, you know, actually it turns out I do want a baby, but then you miscarry, that's something that could then be brought back and potentially found and suddenly you could be open to some sort of investigation because here you have this background of having tried to obtain medications to end a pregnancy before in the past. So these are the things that we need to be very careful about. But we also need to recognize that in general, the type of surveillance that we're talking about are always going to be there, but the people most at risk are going to be the people who are always surveilled in general. So we know that people of color, black and brown people, um, they are the ones who are most likely to be investigated when they go into hospitals. We know that they are the most likely to be investigated um, in general, and that because of both a racist hospital system and medical system and judicial system, that this is the area in which the surveillance is going to be the worst and where a person needs to be the most careful. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to a conversation with Robin Marty. She's the author of New Handbook for a Post-Row America, and she is the director for the West Alabama Women's Center. Robin, I, I often think about what it is what the perspective looks like from outside the United States for people who might just casually follow our politics. And what's confusing perhaps for them is how we've reached this point when public polling has been pretty enduring in finding that pretty significant majorities of Americans believe that abortion at certain uh points along the, the pregnancy should be safe and legal and accessible. I, I guess I, I want to just ask for your perspective on how, how it is that we find ourselves in this place, given what we know about public opinion. I, I'm sure you've thought about this. And, and, it, and for <laughs> someone who does what you do, it might be kind of maddening. It is, actually. And it never became more clear to me than just after the Supreme Court leak that said that mm -hmm. the Supreme Court was intending to end Roe v. Wade altogether. And within hours of that leak, I had so many media requests from out of the U.S. press because they simply could not understand Every really? single one of them wanted to understand how did we get to this place because they couldn't they couldn't see how we've got we've got all of these countries Mexico Ireland all of these countries are saying these abortion the idea of restricting abortion is too much and it harms bodily autonomy and here the US is completely rolling back in the other direction um for me this is kind of an inevitable place. I didn't think that we would get here quite so quickly. But the moment that we saw the Tea Party election surge in 2010, this is a moment that I had been preparing for. And it was because that was the point in which the right had been able to figure out how to really move what looked like out from the outside as grassroots movements, but were really very tightly organized political political action groups in order to change public perception. So the Tea Party fighting against the Affordable Care Act was the precursor to where we are right now. Um, most people wanted health care. <laughs> most Americans want health care. But somehow, because of this group of fabricated activists that showed up and interrupted every public event that targeted Democrats that were even anti-abortion Democrats as being pro-abortion because they were voting in favor of the Affordable Care Act. This was the first step in this orchestrated plot that has now been going on for 12 years in order to reframe everything, disrupt everything, grab the media, a 
by building their own media network itself and being able to control the narrative, it was inevitable that we were going to get here. And honestly, the Supreme Court is just the prize that they got at the end of it. You know, I took note of what you said earlier about it's frustrating to you when you hear people say, well, if if you want abortion rights back, it's all about elections. Yeah. But when I look at where we're headed, I mean, isn't isn't that the only way is for people who believe that abortion ought to be safe and legal and accessible to reclaim some of these state legislatures and reclaim that right within their state? Yeah, I don't discount that. And I do believe that we need to focus on as much electoral control in a local level as possible. Um, I think that we focused on the wrong places. We spent so much time focusing on the White House and so much time focusing on the Senate and so much time focusing on Congress. And when we were doing that in 2008, that's when we got the Tea Party slide in 2010 that took over three-fourths of the state legislatures. Now, once we started trying to act more to do more local politics and try and take back over the states, we saw that the Republicans were moving to city council, which city councils are some of the most powerful places when it comes to being able to protect abortion access from everything from how they will allocate funds to how they will approve or disapprove zoning ordinances that allow clinics to stay open, um, to even declarations of, of support financially. Um, Austin City Council, here in the middle of the most restrictive state in the nation, had passed a funding measure that would provide financial support for people who were looking for abortions. City councils can do amazing things when it comes to making sure that people can still have abortion access. But we are always, we, we don't seem to, as Democrats, have the ability to focus on more than one, more than one legislative arm at a time. And so when I look at things like, okay, what do national elections mean for abortion rights? As much as I want to say that can fix everything, I always look back on 2009 when the Affordable Care Act was up for its first vote. And we had the White House, we had the Senate, we had a veto-proof majority in the Senate and the House, and we still ended up with a Affordable Care Act that stripped out abortion because abortion was used as a bargaining chip. Mm -hmm. So I can't say that federal elections are going to save us. I mean, it sounds like, and... It sounds like you are as frustrated with the advocates, the the political advocates for abortion, as you are with what has been happening politically on the other side, that there wasn't enough commitment to protection of this right, that there wasn't enough good strategy, I guess. Do I have that right? You do, but I think... The reality is we're also in a place where I'm just frustrated. I'm frustrated with the government. I'm frustrated with the state governments. I'm frustrated with advocacy. I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated with myself. I mean, I I literally moved from Minnesota down here in order to do more. And it's falling apart way more quickly than I ever could have imagined. I thought I had at least another year before we got to this point and that there was a lot of good that can be done down here. And I still believe that there's good that can be done, but the good that needs to be done at this point is protecting people who are still going to have abortions because they always have abortions and making sure that they stay legally safe and providing any sort of follow-up care that a person might need because hospitals and doctors are going to try to throw them in jail. Do you mean it's falling apart in in Tuscaloosa, in the work it's that you're It's falling doing apart there, all or? through the South. <laughs> I mean, I... South, yeah. When my husband and I discussed moving down here because it was COVID, we'd never seen this house, we have three children. This was an entire upheaval of our lives, basically for my whim. And when we sat and talked about it, he said, "Can I, I don't expect you to have a job forever. Nobody can have a job forever. But can you at least promise me that the clinic will be there for two years? And I said, yes, because 
inherently, I thought that when Dobbs v. Jackson was decided, it was going to be a nationwide opening for any state to be able to ban abortion after 14 weeks, but I never saw a possibility of it being, okay, you can completely ban abortion altogether. I never saw that coming. I assumed that there would be another different law that would be working its way through, and that would be yet another place where the Supreme Court could say, okay, we're going to take it up, we're going to look at it, um, and that would give me at least another year or two to be able to do more care and do more advocacy and really build networks down here. But then Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And once Amy Comey Barrett was in, it was over. Honestly, there wasn't a thing that could be done. It just happened so quickly. And that was, that was the moment where I think all of my frustration started. I mean, obviously I've been frustrated forever or I wouldn't have written a book telling everybody how to act out, but I mean, that brings us back to the beginning of the conversation where I kind of described where we were on the U.S. Supreme Court in 2019 when you wrote your book. And I have to say, I mean, you sound as disoriented by the velocity of the change as I think many Americans who who give some thought to this are too. Yes, and I think that it's going to continue to be like this. But also that's good because if we weren't disoriented, that means we were accepting it. And as long as we remain opposed and as long as we keep finding an individual way to fight this, it nobody has to <laughs> nobody has to pack up their lives and move to an abortion hostile area and do the work there. I just everybody needs to find one little act that they can do, whether it's lobbying their legislature, whether it is running for city council, whether it's giving money to an abortion fund or money to a clinic or finding some practical support group that they can work with in order to make sure that people can travel. I just really need everybody to do one thing. Robin Marty's book is called New Handbook for a Post-Row America. She's the director for the West Alabama Women's Center, and she was joining us from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Robin, thank you much for the conversation. Of course, anytime. 